How's everybody doing today? Everybody feeling good? Everybody feeling good about the Kansas game that's happening right now? If I see anyone on your phones, I'm going to assume you're watching that and not reading your Bible app, okay? That's what I'm going to assume. So, no, I'm glad to see you guys here tonight. Uh, it's been a, a great week at the Wilson House, um, which, by the way, I'm Brian. If you're a guest, I'm one of the pastors here, but um, just want to say welcome to you if you're a guest. But it's been a great week at our house. We actually moved into our house this week. So, yes, we are in Garden City officially now. We are Garden Cityans. I don't know if that's even a word, but I'm just going to make it up. So, uh, we've been painting, so if, if there's paint or whatever on me, that's, that's what it's from. I, I came out of the room the other day, and I had a big stripe of it across my head, and my kids were laughing at me. They thought I did it on purpose, and I didn't even know it was there. So, uh, but we're, uh, we're getting settled in slowly, and uh, just, just really happy to be able to be here close with you guys and uh, be near the church. We're like four minutes from here, so it's really awesome. So thank you for all of you, all of you who came and helped paint. Thank you for all of you who came and helped us move things in. Thank you for the men who carried that bear of a couch we have down into our basement and it had a bend in the stairs. It was hard, but they did it, and they got it done. So uh, thank you for that. I appreciate it. So we, uh, we kicked off a new series last week called The Upside Down Kingdom. Everybody say Upside Down Kingdom. All right, we're going to have to wake up a little bit tonight. I can already tell, okay? So we have like 22 of our ladies that are at Encounter right now, and those are some of our spunky ladies, okay? Uh, they're there right now. So that means we've got to muster up a little extra spunk for us tonight, uh, those of us who are here and left, okay? So they're out there in the woods having a good time, and uh, hopefully God's moving in hearts there. Uh, we're hearing good reports already, um, so we can actually be in prayer for them as well. Uh, but listen, we're in this series called The Upside Down Kingdom, and what we're doing is we're, we're talking about how uh, there's some teachings that Jesus gave that were difficult to understand. Uh, many of them were difficult to do, but some of them were really difficult to understand. And last week, if you were here with us, we talked about this idea that Jesus says you need to lose your life to save it. And we took some time to unpack that a little bit, and we talked about how that was really a paradox uh, teaching that he gave us. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're actually going to tackle the next uh, one of Jesus' teachings here uh, in this series, Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, so let me pray for us, and we're going to jump right into to our passage in John 3 today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the relevance within it. God, would you use it to move in our hearts tonight? Uh, would, you, would you stir up a desire to please you and serve you more? And God, if there be one here that doesn't know you as Savior, Father, would you save them this very night? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've all had that moment when we congratulate someone for being pregnant, and they're not. Yeah? You only make that mistake once or twice, hopefully no more than twice, or we may need to have a conversation. Uh, very true. Uh, I actually, I've gotten to the point now where I don't even congratulate people when they have their baby. I wait till their baby's about 10 before I throw the congratulations out there just to be safe because I've been embarrassed once or twice by opening my big mouth and congratulating someone for being pregnant and they absolutely were not, okay? But in all seriousness though, when people are pregnant, when you have a young couple that's pregnant or a married couple that's pregnant, they're, they're looking forward to that baby coming. There's these expectations, there's this excitement about so many things. They look forward to holding their newborn. They look forward to, uh, to, to having a nursery. Um, I will say it's different from child to child. With your first child, when you have that first child, you're like, you know, we should probably like take out a second mortgage and build this nursery wing on. I mean, she's definitely, like, she's going to need like all this space and a perfect crib and it's going to be painted just right. By the time you get to like number three and number four, you're like, could we just turn that linen closet into their bedroom? Could we just, could we just maybe put them in there? Like, do they really need diapers? Can we just wrap some newspaper around them? L listen, I, listen, I've watched some of you guys and I'm there too. Like by that third one, you're like, oh, the pacifier dropped in the dirt. It's okay. Here you go. And you pop it right back in. We've all done it, but it changes. 
Now, there's a lot of excitement that's wrapped around it, and a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, young couples even today will have an app that'll give them the countdown until the day of their child's birth. And there's a lot of importance. There's a lot of uh, weight that is surrounding that day. There's a lot of uh, excitement and anticipation about the birth that is to come. But what we're going to actually see today in our teaching from John 3 is that Jesus says the most important moment in your life and the moment of greatest weight is actually the day of your second birth. Not just your natural birth, but the day of your second birth. Now, Jesus had a way of shattering expectations when he came. See, he rarely did what he was supposed to do, and he ended up being crucified by a lot of religious people because they saw something he was bringing that they didn't like. He, he, he disturbed the status quo. He did not come. Get this, get this straight, okay? Jesus did not come to continue something from long ago. Jesus came to bring something new. Jesus absolutely came to bring something new. He came to turn the kingdom, as everyone knew it, upside down. And he came to bring a kingdom unlike, unlike any other that's ever been known. He came to establish a relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. Now, there were many who thought, well, this is just a new rabbi that's come, and he's got a new spin on the Torah. He's got a really creative way of, of telling us what's in, in the, those pieces of the Old Testament called the Torah. But he did. He came to implement something new. And what Jesus brought was actually a complete departure. Get this. It was a complete departure from what all the religious system knew up to this point in history. And the religious people in his day saw it. I don't know if you've thought about this before. A lot of times, because we're on the back end of all these things that have happened in history when it comes to Jesus, we've got historical data, we've got God's Word to show us what happened. Sometimes we forget what, what was happening to many of the religious people in the day in which Jesus put his feet on the ground and started doing ministry. See, they've been used to, to uh, the status quo going a certain way, uh, certain religious rhythms. And Jesus came and completely upset it. They didn't view him as a, oh, this guy's a pretty good teacher. We should maybe implement some of his things. No, they saw there was something more happening here. There was something different that Jesus was bringing. This was not just some continuation of what happened in the Old Testament. This was not some continuation of the promised people of Israel. Jesus was doing something very, very disruptive. Because if you were to read prior in the chapter, in uh, chapter 3, where we're about to go. So if you want to go to John 3, you can do that. Earlier in the chapter, he actually tells them, he says, I am greater than the temple. Now think about the weight that that held in that context, okay? For the Jewish people, the temple was the epicenter of their lives. It was the place where they housed the Torah. It was the place where God resided. And all those things were very much true. And so this was offensive. Jesus came and said, look, hey, tear that temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. Now, that's another upside-down teaching. Okay, that's a teaser. That's coming in a couple of weeks. We're going to tackle that one too. But he came and he said, look, your temple, it's not a big deal anymore. He said, what I'm bringing is something new. And what he was showing them is that sacred was now different. You see, for the Jewish people, sacred had always been a place. It had always been a specific small group of people that were sacred. It had always been a list of certain items that were sacred. And what Jesus is bringing to them now is something completely different. And what he's saying is there's nothing more sacred than the person sitting next to you today. There's nothing more sacred than the person that lives across the street from you today. There's no more special places. There's no more special people. There's no more special items or objects. He says, look, I've come to bring something new. And so this disruption was upsetting to a lot of the religious people, but it was intriguing to other people. Now, think about it in this context as well. The Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to come in power, okay? 
Again, we know the end of the story. So it's so dangerously easy for us to get numb and just tune it all out and be like, hey, Jesus wins in the end. He raised from the dead. We know what happened on the back end, but they don't know it here. And so they're expecting the Messiah to come as this great political power, this force that comes and brings wealth and prosperity to the nation of Israel. They just, they, they would have loved if the day when he said that about the temple, if Jesus would have walked up into the temple courtyard and pulled his robe apart like this and he had a giant M on his chest. That's what they wanted and that's what they were expecting. They wanted a Superman Messiah, but that's not what he did. Jesus spoke with authority when he taught, but he refused to take charge. Jesus spoke with authority, but he refused to take charge. You remember multiple times throughout the gospel accounts. I'm spitting a lot tonight. You guys be glad you're not sitting in the front row. I'm going, poof, poof. It's going everywhere. I don't know what's going on. All right. <clears throat> Maybe I need some water. I don't know. But every time they try to raise him up and make him king, let's make him king now. He's given us, remember last week, fast food. He's given us all these great things. People are being healed. This guy's amazing. He'd say, no, 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 no. My time's not yet come yet. See, he taught with authority. But he refused to take charge. Jesus won the crowd, but he refused the crown. He said, it's not my time yet. And so they didn't have a category for what to put Jesus in. You guys with me? Say amen. Look, now here's the interesting piece. So he grabbed the attention of a lot of the religious people, but there was one religious person that he really intrigued. Okay? So he, he upset a lot of them, but he intrigued a few of them. And we have a story recorded for us in John chapter 3 that John, actually probably John's scribe, wrote down for him in John 3. Uh, And his name is Nicodemus. Now look at John 3 with me. And with that context in mind, I want us to walk through this passage here in John chapter 3. And uh, and, and hopefully God will speak to your heart as we we just dig into his word a little bit here. John 3 verse 1. They'll all be on the screens here so you can see them with me. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Everybody say Nicodemus. If we call him Nick for the rest of the night, it's to save me a few breaths, okay? So if I say Nick, that's who I'm talking about, all right? He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we're introduced to the religious person who was intrigued here, all right? Nicodemus was someone who was moral. He was good. He was religious. And actually, when it came to religion, Nicodemus was varsity here. This was no JV slack. Nicodemus was absolutely varsity. He was what they would call a Pharisee. And you know you hear that word a lot in church. Okay, uh, but this is the kind of person that that uh, that Nicodemus is. He, the, the Pharisees took morality to a whole another level. They actually had uh, some say about six hundred and thirteen uh, rules and laws, commands that they had to keep. Plus, they added to that a bunch of fine print that made them feel even better about themselves. So there was all this external uh, religiosity going on. Uh, they had one in particular that I always thought was fascinating. It, it, this is this was actually a rule. Okay, for the Pharisees. And Nicodemus kept it, okay? If you ate and you forgot to say the blessing, and later on in the day you figured that out, you actually had to go back to the site at which you ate and say the blessing. So imagine for our context today, all right? You're eating down here at the rib crib, all right? And you've got the barbecue sauce dripping down your face, right? And you leave the restaurant and you realize three hours later, oh man, I didn't pray. The pharisaical rule here, the law would say, look, Hey, you need to go. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Let's give this guy a hand. Give that guy a hand. Yes, sir. Oh, well, that helped. Okay. I'll stop spraying you here, Stuart. All right. 
So Pharisee law would say, hey, you've got to go back to the site. So a few hours later, you're like, oh, man, I forgot to say the blessing. I forgot to thank God for the food. You'd go back. You'd have to kick the people out of the booth that you sat in. You'd have to be like, hey, waiter, come here. Come stand right here. And you have to simulate and, and, and re-facilitate the whole thing again and say the blessing. Isn't that silly? It's crazy. These are the kind of things that they kept, and it made them feel really good about themselves. And this is who Nicodemus was, okay? Now, it also said there in the verse that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So the Jewish ruling council would be called the Sanhedrin. You might have heard that word before and not really know what it meant. It would, it would essentially be the equivalent of our modern-day Supreme Court. Okay, these were, these were big dog leaders. And so Nicodemus started out as just a Pharisee, but then somehow made his way onto this Jewish ruling council. Maybe he was just a really hard worker, and he was just, you know, really eager and excited and, and uh, you know, had a lot of vigor and went after it. Maybe he was politically connected. We don't know. But he sits on this Sanhedrin board, and this is a powerful group of men who were looked at with even more esteem than a regular old Pharisee, okay? Now, what I think is also interesting about this is that uh, John actually records Nicodemus' name. Again, if you've read the Bible often, you probably just read over it without thinking about this. But he could have just said there was a man who met with Jesus by night and then told the story. But it's almost as if he's saying, look, fact check me. This Sanhedrin was an actual historical group of men between 22 and 70 men that sat on this Sanhedrin board. And he says, look, there was one of them. His name was Nicodemus. Go back and fact check me in history. This is a real deal thing. So if you're here tonight and you're like, I don't know about this old Jesus thing. I don't know if this stuff's legit. I don't know. Look, this is an actual, John's like, hey, fact check me on this. This Nicodemus guy was a real person. So he's a Pharisee. He's very moral. He's been born into the nation of Israel. Naturally, he's a Jew, okay? He's on the the Jewish ruling council. So John sets up really well for us how great this guy is. Look, keep going here. John 3, 2 again. Or John 3, 2, sorry. He came to Jesus at night, okay? Now, a lot of scholars kind of go back and forth on this whole thing. Some say it's because, you know, uh, they, they give a list. I won't go through all of them. They give a list of five to ten reasons as to why he came at night. This is what I believe, okay, because we're not told. I believe he was intrigued. Because of the way he goes about the rest of the conversation, he doesn't seem angry with Jesus. He's intrigued with Jesus. He's interested and he wants to engage with him. And my guess would be that, and my belief would be that he came to him at night because he was probably embarrassed that his other Pharisee and other Sanhedrin buddies would say, dude, what are you doing talking to that guy? He's the enemy right now. This guy's trying to upend everything that we're all about. We've built this little empire here around us being religious, and he's turning upside down. What are you doing talking to him? My, my opinion would be that he came because uh, he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed of what others might have said of him. Okay, so he comes to Jesus by night. Keep going. Verse, uh, verse 2 again. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Now, rabbi would have been a term of respect. There was nothing, no slight here. It just simply means teacher, okay? So he, he recognized he's a teacher. But he says, we know, okay? He says, we know, not I know, but we know. So he was likely a representative of a larger group of leaders who just wanted some answers. And he was the one that had enough courage to come and meet with Jesus by night to get those answers. But he says, we know that you're a teacher who was come from God. Everybody say, come from God. He was come from God because there was something different about Jesus. You realize there were other rabbis who were raised up during this time frame that went around doing some teaching, not necessarily just like Jesus, but there were other rabbis in that time frame, in this point of history. But there was something different about Jesus, but they couldn't quite put him into a box. They couldn't quite fit him into a category. And they said, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, not only because of what you say, but because of what you're doing. Keep going in verse 2. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
So he's admitting, he says, look, I really believe you're from God. I'm just not sure what to do with this, Jesus. One thing to note here is oftentimes when we read God's word, and even many people in that day, and we see God do miraculous things, we think of them just in terms of being miracles, a really neat big magic trick, so to speak, okay? But the religious astute in Nicodemus, as we know, is one of those. They understood that these weren't just magic par- or, or parlor tricks or magic tricks. They knew that these things Jesus was doing, the things he was saying, all these signs, all these teachings, these were signs that he was from God. They were signs authenticating the fact that he was from God. And so Nicodemus just comes out in front. This is part of his setup. He says, look, we all know, me and my buddies, the Sanhedrin, we've been talking. We know that you've come from God because nobody can do these signs that you're doing if God is not with him. And so this is Nick's setup. And so imagine, imagine the conversation there. He sets it all up that way, and then he takes a big breath, and he starts to go into his first question. And he goes, and then Jesus just cuts him off. You know, he just completely cuts him off. Look at what the next verse says. And here's the thing. God knew, or Jesus knew what Nick was going to ask before he even asked the question. This is, what, this is what Jesus says to him in verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Here we can see our next upside-down kingdom teaching. You must be born again. It sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? It makes you kind of scratch your head. And again, if you've been in church for a long time, you might have heard that phrase thrown around, but maybe you've never really fully wrapped your head around what it means. And think about what Nick's thinking here in the story when Jesus says this to him. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nick was probably thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? Because for Jewish people, the kingdom of God was synonymous with the kingdom of Israel. And he's like, look, Jesus, I'm in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a ruler in the kingdom of God. I'm actually one of the best members of the kingdom of God. What do you mean I can't even see the kingdom of God unless I'm born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've got to be born again. Your first birth doesn't matter at all. The first birth everybody has. It's the second birth that makes the difference. When he, says the, when he says that phrase, born again, it literally means to be born from above. If you're taking notes, write it down. It means to be born from above. And at this point in the conversation, Nick probably kind of chuckles to himself. He says, Jesus, I mean, I was offended there for a minute when you said I couldn't see the kingdom of God because I... I've been a part of it. I'm leading in it. But, but I mean, what, what do you mean I've got to be born again? That doesn't even make sense. I mean, am I, am I supposed to go back into my mother? And look at what he says in verse 4. How can somebody be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Very, very good logical question here, okay? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He probably kind of chuckles to himself. He knows Jesus isn't being literal here because that wouldn't make any sense at all. But he's just not quite tracking. He doesn't quite know what Jesus means yeah, look at verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Now think about for a minute what he said already. He said, earlier he said, not only can you not see the kingdom of God, but you can't enter. You won't recognize it, and you certainly won't get in unless you're born again. I keep going there. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water the natural birth, and of the Spirit, the second birth. Jesus continues, verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. What are you saying? Jewish people have Jewish people. Roman people have Roman people. 
Kansas people have Kansas people. Someone say amen. None of you birthed a West Virginianer, okay? Unless maybe you lived in West Virginia for that period of time. Kansasans, they they birth Kansasans. That's what he's saying. Look, flesh gives birth to flesh. And what he's meaning here is this. Nicodemus, I understand that you're a part of the kingdom of Israel. I understand that they've been God's chosen people up to this point. But look, your natural birth has nothing to do with the second birth. He says, you've actually got to be born again. And Nicodemus is just confused. He's like, I don't, I'm, I'm not tracking Jesus. I've got this list of questions. Can we maybe get back to my list of questions that I've not even been able to ask the, the first one yet? And Jesus said, no, no, you can be born into the Jewish community, Nicodemus. But in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, your traditions don't matter. Your natural birth don't matter. And I'll just say this to you. I know, I know Midwestern culture is much like culture in the South in this way. Church very much is a tradition for a lot of families. And you going to church doesn't make you a, a Christian. It doesn't make you born again any more than going up into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Okay? It does not matter. And I'm just going to tell you, culture, your normal religious rhythm of the week may be to come to church and you've been attending church for years and years and you're 30 or you're 40 or you're 50 years old and you think just because your family has always had the tradition, hey, I was born in this great family and maybe they were and maybe they didn't know Jesus and maybe it was a good thing that it was your tradition that you went to church but Jesus says your tradition doesn't matter. That's not what saves you. He says, look, you can be born into any family you want to be born into. You can do all the great religious rhythm uh, traditions you want to do. But he says, you must be born again. Someone say amen. Listen, it's very much a real thing. It's very much a real thing. It's the same reason that that Jesus says in another place, look, on that day, people are going to come and they're going to stand in front of me. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those are the people that didn't experience that second birth. Those are the people that depended on their tradition or their goodness or their morality, much like Nicodemus. And Jesus is going to say, no, 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 depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want any one of us to fall into that category today. Look at verse 7. We're going to keep going. Verse 7 and 8. You should not be surprised. This is Jesus talking again. You should not be surprised at my saying, Nicodemus. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. If you're taking notes, the first point really is this. Being born again is a must, not a maybe. Being born again is a must on a maybe. You notice what he said? He, he, he kind of alludes to it earlier on. He says, uh, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven, right? He says, you've got to be born of the spirit, he talks about. But here he doesn't, he didn't make any, any uh, uh, concessions at all. He says, look, you must be born again. It's an imperative. And I would just say this. If Jesus has any validity to you whatsoever tonight, if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, you're like, man, he's a great guy. And he seems like a wise teacher. You know, I like a lot of the things that he did. It seems like he was kind of a misunderstood rebel. Whatever it is, you should pay attention when Jesus gives us imperatives. When in the red letter pieces of your Bible, Jesus gives imperatives. Take note that you've done that or you're doing that anytime you see it because it's a must and not a maybe. It's not optional. And you can imagine, Nick again, he's getting frustrated. It's like, Jesus, I've got this list of questions. I really wanted to ask you these things. And now you're talking about born again. Now you're talking about the wind. Where did that come from? The wind blows wherever it pleases. Look at, look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born 
of the Spirit. Second thing, not only is being born again a must, not a maybe. Number two is being born again is for everyone, not just special people. Being born again is for everyone, not just special people. You remember in the beginning of the message, we talked about how that Jesus came and he said, look, there's no more special people. Everyone's going to have the opportunity. I'm bringing something new. And this was offensive to the religious people. And he gives this, this parallel of the wind. And he uses a little bit of wordplay here because the word for spirit there is actually the same word used for wind. He uses a little wordplay with Nicodemus. And he says, look, we feel the wind. Hey, were you guys around two days ago? Holy moly. Again, can we just talk about the weather? Like, come on, guys. Since I've been here, maybe like, maybe I'm the Jonah. Maybe you guys need to throw me out of the boat or something to make all this stop. I don't know. Last two days have been pretty, pretty, but two days ago, woo, it was like the Dorothy deal from, from uh, Wizard of Oz, all right? Uh, it was windy. It's been cold. It's been snowy, but really, you know, we know about the wind. We can, you can see the effects of the wind. You can hear the wind. You can feel the wind, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. And what he's saying, what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is it's the same thing with the Spirit. And what he's trying to get across is, look, Nick, I understand that many years ago God made Abraham a promise that he would make him the father of many nations. And we stand here today as a result of that promise. This is what Jesus would be saying to Nicodemus. And we're part of that kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And that God then through Moses made an exclusive covenant with our people. We got all the rules and regulations. God gave that, that, that list of rules to Moses. And he said, if you guys will do this, it was a conditional covenant. If you'll do these things, then I'll give you favor. If you don't do these things, you will not get my favor. He says, look, Nicodemus, I get it. You're, we're part of the kingdom of Israel. You know all about Abraham. You know all about Moses. But Nick, listen to me. God is not exclusive anymore. He's like the wind. He said he moves inside and outside the confines of this arrangement whenever he wants to. God is not locked in. God is not blocked in. His spirit moves like the wind. God is bigger than this religious system that you know, Nicodemus. God is greater than the temple. He's like the wind. And let me just tell you this too. Our nation, Nicodemus, our nation of Israel, believe it or not, was a means to an end. It was a means to an end to bring the Messiah to be born. And Jesus, and imagine what Nicodemus is thinking here. As, G, as Jesus gives him this illustration of the wind, he's like, wait a minute. All these things that I've been wrapped up in, they're not doing anything to get me into the kingdom? That doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus is saying, look, God is like the Spirit, it's like the wind. He's going to blow and he's going to do what he wants to do now. And the nation of Israel has been a means to an end up to this point in Nicodemus, and this should make every one of us excited tonight, the entire world will be given the opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God. Like, this is a big deal. Like, this interchange with Nicodemus is one of the biggest conversations Jesus has throughout all the Gospels. I mean, this is huge. This lets all of us get in, but only if we're born again. Only if we're twice born. Jesus at this point says, it no longer matters. What family you were born into, it's all about the second birth now. And look what, look what Nicodemus says, verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. In other words, how did I miss this? This doesn't make sense. I've spent my life trying to be this perfect religious person who, who's a great leader. And I mean, I've built my life and my career and my family around this. And how did I miss this? And I love what Jesus says to him, verse 10. 
You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Like, this is the blind leading the blind here. He says, look, everybody's looking to you for guidance, and you don't get what I'm saying. And Nick is probably, again, he's, he's bewildered. This whole conversation has been derailed by Jesus. Jesus did a really good job of that when he interacted with people. Because he knew their heart. He knew what was at the motive of what they were about to ask anyway. And so he just goes right to the heart of it. But he's probably bewildered here. But he's still interested. He still stays in the conversation. At no point here do we see Nicodemus is like, forget it, I'm out of here. I, you, I can't talk to you. You're crazy. This makes no sense. He doesn't walk away. So he's still intrigued and he's still interested. And you know, maybe you're like that tonight. Maybe you're here and you, you're like, man, this whole Jesus thing, I don't quite get it yet. I don't get this whole church thing. Like, I don't get why, why these Christian people are so nice. I mean, at least we should be nice. Amen, right? Yeah, we should be. All right. I, don't, I don't understand what's different about them. Like, but I just know something's different and you're interested and you're intrigued and you're here tonight and you're like, man, I, I want to I know. I want to get it. I want it to click with me, but I'm not quite there yet. Well, this is exact, you're in the same seat as Nicodemus. And look what he says next. Jesus gives him some common, common ground. Sorry, my voice is going. So he wants to teach Nick a little bit. He gives him some common ground. Verse 14. Just as Moses, everybody say Moses. Now Nick's on the same page. Okay. He knows Moses. Moses was the covenant maker. He was the command giver. He knows Moses. Just as Moses, the rest of verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Nick probably said, oh, yeah, now I'm with you, Jesus. I've heard this story since I was a kid. I actually can repeat it forwards and back. It was, the, the, you know, the, your, your people were out in the wilderness. They were, they were moving from Egypt to the promised land, and there were these snakes everywhere in the desert, and people started getting bitten by the snakes, and some of them were poisonous, and people were dying, and people were getting sick. And, and, and God told Moses in that moment to, to raise up a brass snake on a pole, as if we needed more snakes at that point in the story. And he raises up this snake on a pole, and when they looked on it, they lived. I remember this story, Jesus. Okay, uh, but, but what does this have to do with born again, with the wind? Now we're talking about snakes. What does all this mean? And then he goes in, and this is where he, this is where he drops it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Nick would say, whoa, Son of Man, that's Messiah language. Son of Man, is, that's, that, that's when, we, when we talk about the Messiah, that's what we, we call him. That's code for the one we've been waiting for, for a long time to come be this political hero. Remember the M on the chest? That's the guy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean he's going to be put on a pole? You mean he's going to be raised up like that snake in the wilderness? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. He's supposed to come as a hero. He's supposed to come and be celebrated. You mean he's going to be cursed? Because if you, anyone that hung on a tree or hung on a pole was cursed. He said, this... I don't have a box to put this in, Jesus. I, I, I don't understand how to, I can't put the Messiah there. Why would he hang on a pole and be cursed? He just didn't understand. Look at the rest of it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And Nick would have said, wait, wait, wait. You're talking about, this, you're talking about the Messiah being hung on a pole? And being cursed, we know how to get eternal life. You keep the commandments. That's how you get eternal life. You love your neighbor as yourself. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That's how you get eternal life. You mean the Messiah is going to let everybody into eternal life that believes? You're telling me anybody's okay? What about us who have done all this legwork for all these years? You're telling me that the Messiah is not coming with an M on his chest. He's coming, he's going to be cursed 
He's going to hang on a pole. And if anyone believes in him for that second birth, they're going to be led in. And Jesus said, yeah, absolutely. That's not what we were planning for, Nick would say. He was supposed to be celebrated when he came. Not cursed. Not beaten down. Now, he didn't understand. Now, let, me, let, me, let me pull out of the story just for a second here. What you're going to see next in the next verse, we're almost done. You're going to see a, a, what we do oftentimes when we're telling a story. Uh, John's going to pull out of the story because there are things that the people that were in the story at this point in history would not have understood yet. There were a lot of things that Jesus said and taught that didn't make sense to the people in the story or the people he was talking to until after the resurrection. Okay? So at the point at which this story goes down, they have not seen Jesus be crucified and buried and rise on the third day. They've not seen it yet. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pull out here because at this, whenever John records this or has his scribe record this for him, uh, his eyewitness account, he does what we do in stories. And it'd be kind of like this. If you were telling someone about, uh, you know, your friend driving down the road and her car breaking down, okay? It would be something like this. This is what he's going to do with the next verse. Hey, so my friend Sally, she was driving down Fleming. And, and she was driving along, going about, you know, 30 miles an hour down the road. And now what she didn't know was that her car was out of gas. See what I'm doing there? And then you keep going with the story. You say, okay. And, and so she went on down the road and the car broke down and she ran out of gas and she had to pull over, okay? You see what I did? That's what John's about to do here. He's going to go back and add some color to the story that they would not have had then and that even John wouldn't have known at the time at which this conversation with Nicodemus went down. You guys with me? Yes? Okay, all right, look what he's going to do. This is an honest assessment, not some literary device. He's, he's being real with him, okay? And, and, and he wants the, the readers of the book of John. John wants the readers, us, and everybody else that's read this book, not to miss the importance of the conversation. Because if he doesn't add some clarity here, this whole upside-down kingdom thing is not going to make a lot of sense to us, okay? And this is what he says, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. God loved humanity so much that he gave. God loved us so much that he gave his only son. And giving is always a result of love. Giving away is always a result of love. It's the opposite of us being selfish with our lives that we talked about last week. God loved us. He loved humanity. Fallen, wicked Try to help yourself up. Try to clean yourself up and make yourself better. Humanity. He loved us so much when we were even enemies of God that he sent his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, go to that next slide for me. Notice the words believes in are highlighted there for you. Can you guys see that up there? What's really fascinating about this is there's actually no Greek word for the word trust. There's, no, there's not a Greek word that he could have supplied there. And so John was actually the first person to have his scribe write down the two words, believe in. No one in all of Greek literature up to this point had put believe and in together. Okay? And what he's doing here is he's saying, look, this is believing in. This is not just believing that Jesus exists. This is believing in. This is placing your faith and your life in Jesus, okay? This is more than just acknowledging him and believing him. He says, believing 
in and his scribe, the scribe that was writing down John for him. John's dictating what to write down as he writes this story out in this conversation, in this clarification here at the end. And the scribe's probably like, John, you don't want to use that. No one uses that kind of language. That almost sounds like it's, it's not even grammatically correct. You don't want to do that. And John said, no, no, no. We've got to get across what this means. He says, believe in. And so if you're taking notes, your third point, and we're done. Being born again means believing in. Do you realize that the demons and the devil believe and they tremble, Scripture tells us? They acknowledge that there's Jesus, that Jesus exists. They acknowledge that God exists. But what John is saying is it's got to be more than just an acknowledgement. It's got to be more than just belief. It's believing in. It's complete faith and trust in Jesus. And look what it says. Shall not perish. That literally means that you will not be lost to God. Whoever will believe in, place their faith in, will not be lost to God. And then he uses the word but. And it's a big but there, okay? I'm making sure you're still awake, all right? It's there. In the Greek, all right, this is the strongest contrast, all right? I won't make any 90s music reference there, I promise, okay? I won't do it. All right, listen, this, this is a big but though, okay? He says, you will not be lost to God. And then he uses the strongest Greek word he can to, to, to try to translate what's going on with, with this, this interchange, this exchange that happens. He says, but will have eternal life. Being born again means believing in. It means placing your faith, your trust, your life in the hands of of Jesus. I could take one of these chairs right here. We're almost done. You can close your Bibles. Close them up. I can take this chair and I can say all day long, I believe that chair exists. I can believe that it might even hold me up if I sit in it. I can believe that its purpose, I can believe in what its purpose is to hold the, hold the chair, to hold, or to hold me up in the chair. But I've not actually believed in that chair until I do what? Until I sit down. This is believing in, and this is believing. This is believing in, this is acknowledging that Jesus exists. And listen, for many of you even here tonight, you might be thinking like Nicodemus, hey, my family's traditionally come to church for a long time, I believe there's a Jesus, but you've never actually placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and, and, and be, being brought into the family of God. You've never truly been born again or twice born. And what Jesus says is, look, it takes believing in, placing your faith, your hope, your trust, your life in Jesus. And he'll change the course of your life, the trajectory of your life forever. He says you won't be lost to God, but you'll be, you'll be forever with Jesus. You'll be forever with God. You'll have eternal life. And so here's our application. Will you believe in Jesus today? If you've never placed your faith in Christ, number one, if you have, this message ought to really excite us. Because this is one of the conversations that flipped the whole kingdom upside down. This allowed people like you and me who are not Jewish to get in. That ought to excite us. We ought to be grateful for that today. But if, if you're here and you say, you know what? I've been born once. I exist. I'm here in the seat. But I've never been born again. Will you believe in Jesus today? The traditions, the religious rhythms that you participate in, coming to church each week, even being a life group. If you never believe in Jesus, place your faith fully in Him for salvation, Jesus says, You won't see a kingdom of God. You won't have a kingdom of God. You won't have a kingdom of God.
We're ready to go. If the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with your heart right now, and you feel a conviction that's bristling up in a good way, we should be busy. die for me to be cursed for me God would you draw people into your family right now if they don't know you God let us see new births all over this room tonight and tomorrow you be glorified above all in Jesus name Amen now listen we don't know what Nick did with that conversation right at the end of that conversation it doesn't tell us right there in the moment but eventually he got it. If you were to read John 19, you'd actually see that he was one of the people who went with Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, to, to, to ask for the body of Jesus so they could prepare him for burial. You wouldn't go and stand before a powerful gov government official like Pilate if you did not believe in Jesus. He wouldn't have done it. He'd have been ashamed. He'd have been afraid. He would not have done it. So Nicodemus got in. But here's what I suspect. So often... When a crucifixion happened, they'd have the cross laid on the ground and they'd be placing whoever they were about to crucify onto that cross. And they'd either be tying them up or they'd be nailing their, their hands and their feet like they did with Jesus. And oftentimes a mob crowd would gather around and they'd be jeering and they'd be swearing and they'd be spitting on them. And in the back of the crowd would be the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was who Nicodemus was a part of. Remember, he was on that Jewish ruling council. And they would stand in the back and they would sit there with their arms crossed and they would observe whoever was about to be crucified because most of the time they had a hand in crucifying them. They were the reason that they were about to be hung. And maybe, this is what I suspect, with Nicodemus, maybe he stands at the back of the crowd that day with his other Sanhedrin buddies. And he can't see the cross, he can't see Jesus because he's laying on the ground. But in a moment, the cross begins to raise up. And he sees Jesus hanging from the back of the ground. And it all clicks for him. And he says, oh, now I get it. This, the serpent that was on the pole. The Messiah, who didn't come in power, but came as a curse, hung on the tree. And maybe it was that moment when he came to know Jesus Christ. I don't know. But listen, we know he got it. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, would you have that aha moment where you give your life to him tonight? Everybody do this for me. Close your, close your eyes and bow your heads. Don't, don't anybody look up here at me yet. Just bow your heads. I, I don't often do this. This is very rare when I give these op an opportunity this, this clear and this correct. If the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with your heart and you want to be born again tonight, and you want to accept Christ, you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ and let him change your life, would you just lift your head and look right here at me? Would you just lift your head and look right here at me? You can bow your heads. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. There's nothing special about the words that we say. But if the Holy Spirit of God is, is moving in your heart, would you just pray this simple prayer to yourself there in your seat? Jesus, I surrender. 
forgive me. Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I surrender. Forgive me for my sin. Jesus, I believe in you. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you meant that in your heart above all, the Holy Spirit of God's been dealing with you and the Scripture tells us that you're saved and the next, next layer to that is that the Scripture tells us is baptism. It's a, the public profession of what God's just done in your heart. And so what we're going to do is this, as the band plays our final song, if you, if you just accepted Christ and you'd like to be baptized tonight, we've got clothes up there, we've got towels, we've got changing rooms, we're prepared. We'd love to give you an opportunity to be baptized and make your faith public tonight. So I'm going to be standing here at the front as they play this final song. If you'd like to be baptized, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll wait, okay? We'll wait a little bit. We'll get out a little late tonight, it's okay. I'm going to be up here at the front if you want to be baptized tonight because you placed your faith in Jesus. You've believed in Him for the first time. And come meet me at the front. Father, again, we thank you for the power of your word. God, I, I pray in faith that you've drawn people into a relationship with you. You've allowed them to be born again, to be twice born. And I pray that we would just see the effects of this flow out of us tonight. God, for those in here that know you already, God, would you help them to be grateful for this conversation that, that Jesus had with Nicodemus, inviting all of us into the the kingdom, the true kingdom of God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come meet me at the front.